Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. Today I speak to an individual who has experienced failure more than most, but used dreaming as a way of building resilience through personal adversity and led him to cross the Atlantic twice, redefining his disability, breaking four Guinness World Records while striving to be better tomorrow than today. This episode has been sponsored by Discrete Chaos. Head over to their Instagram at Discrete Chaos and use the promotion code CANTCANWILL21 to receive a 10% discount on all clothing. Episode 9, Frank Spencer. We had a conversation a few weeks back about dreaming. And I found it really fascinating, your take on on what dreaming has actually meant to you and how you've only just really realized that concept from a recent podcast that you'd done a couple of weeks before we spoke. So can I invite you to to talk about that and your thoughts around dreaming? Um, Yeah, it's uh, it's not just come about like a sudden um, realisation on another podcast. It's been saying I've been thinking about for a while, kind of um, I'm writing a book and going back over uh you know childhood and things like that and lots of different memories and one thing that kind of astonished me really was i'd forgotten just how absolutely useless that everything i i was and i like the way that you uh sell yourself there it's brilliant <laughs> but well it's um you know it's uh, I'm not bad now, you know, I was a Royal Marines commander, I was a volunteer for uh, special duties, I worked undercover in Afghanistan, I've led men in war, and um, I've got four Guinness World Records for uh, endurance events, you know, Um, and I beat the able-bodied record for rowing solo across the Atlantic by 36 days, and I've done that with one leg, which ain't bad, but... You know, it's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of all of those achievements, but I just can't. It, it's really come about by trying to um, make sense of that when looking at how absolutely useless at everything I've ever been. Um, and, uh, and I, I'm... You know, it's no, uh, uh, I'm not like over-egging things to make a, a point. Um, I got all excited because I thought I had a cup of tea coming. Um, uh, but the, uh, you know, <clears throat> everything I, and these ain't things that are, you know, just random things I happen to be bad at. These are things that I really wanted to be good at. These are things I tried from, if we go, um, sports, like sporting or physical uh, things. I, I always thought I'd be good at cross-country running. I've no idea. I think it was because I was really bad at short-distance sprinting. Um, and uh, on uh, the selection, the, all, every, the whole year got forced into a cross-country run and you was given a ticket 
right, as you came in, so number one, number two, number three, number four, in a year of, I think it was about 94 people in my year at school, I came 53rd. And this is something that I try to be good at. I always played football, never made any of the sports teams. And I, I ended up playing for Sunday League team, centre forward for four years centre forward and I scored two goals that's half a goal a season as I said it's, it's goalkeepers scored more goals you um, should play up front for Arsenal at the minute then they'll probably <laughs> get a bag a few more than they are at the moment well we're not doing too bad at the moment we've got two games on the yeah, fair, fair. and everything like you know break dancing was a big thing when I was a kid there was like a couple of films sort of came over from America and uh, I was just absolutely rubbish at that. I can remember there was a, there used to be like this disco uh, for, for body poppers uh, in Dagenham in uh, one of the pubs. Yeah. <laughs> and they used, to like, they used to call it a burn off or something ridiculous where you'd you'd have like a break dancing battle with someone. And uh, I know, it's not only being bad at things, it's just actually putting myself in positions where I just fall over constantly. I, and I, I put myself up to go on this sort of break dancing battle against someone. And he sort of ran off and started spinning on his back and windmilling. That was so, windmilling was like the holy growl of body popping. Like if, if nobody knows what it is, it's where you, you kind of spin on your back and spin your legs round uh, at the same time. It's really, probably best if you google it and I, I i then stood in front of a massive crowd and my brain just control deleted everything that i could do and, and uh, i just sat there and done a bad impression of a robot <laughs> people booed i mean i failed academically uh, I, I wasn't good at anything absolutely nothing not only was i not i had a oh falconry i had a kestrel it flew away obviously <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking everything I ever tried I was always bad at so if we look at that though I speak to quite a few people now um, about failure and I often say that failure is a is almost a passage of right to success it's needed but people are really scared of it and they don't want to fail at anything um, for many different reasons yeah, I absolutely, 100% agree with you. They call it resilience, don't they? Resilience is the ability to fail and pick yourself up and go again. That's it. It's, it's to fail, to fall down. Sometimes you fail because the universe is not you today. Sometimes you fail because something bad happens to someone you love. Sometimes you fail because something bad happens to you. Sometimes you fail because you don't prepare well enough. Sometimes you fail because you just make a stupid mistake. There's lots of reasons why you fail. But it's how you pick yourself up and go again. Um, if if you keep failing against something and you keep picking yourself up and going again and banging your head against the brick wall, that's stupidity. That's not resilience, that's stupidity. And determination will only take you so far. And this is where the dreaming part comes in. And going back to saying how bad I was as a kid at everything, my dream um, was to be a Royal Marine. That's all I wanted to be. I wanted to be a brave person. I thought I, I thought I was a coward. Can I just go back a little bit because there's some really some really interesting parts there before we move move forward. Do you think that 
we talk about failure and I don't want to skip over that part because I think it's really important to try and expose a little bit more of your experience and your expertise about that. Do you think that as a child, you said that you failed it a lot. Did you know you were failing? Yeah. And, and so what was it that made, if you knew that that was the case, what was it that made you get up and go again? It's dreaming. I, 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 I've always been a dreamer. It's one of those things that you kind of only just realised that you kind of been doing it a bit different to everybody else. You always assume that everybody else's experience of life is very similar to yours. You know, and it's, it often becomes a bit of a shock where you go, oh, didn't you? All oh, right, okay. It's like your family. I always thought my family was normal. It turns out it wasn't. And they only realise that when you get to see other people's families and the way they live their lives. And, and they're not normal either. <laughs> a lot, well, a lot more normal than my family and upbringing. Um, and it's the same with how you see yourself. And, you, and what I didn't realise was that I'd, I'd become not only an expert at failing, I'd become an expert in dreaming. I never lost a dream. When, let me, this will explain it. Say I was rubbish at everything and I wanted to be a brave person. That's all I wanted to be. And for me, the epitome of a brave person when I was growing up was a Royal Marines commander. That's what I wanted to be. I didn't want the job. Couldn't tell you how much they earned. It, 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 as a career, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking of it in terms. I wanted to be that person. The concept. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I wanted to be that person. That's who I wanted to be. Okay. Um, and when you're 13, you have a careers fair before you take your options in school. And they had uh, all the armed forces there. I went up to the Royal Marine and said, I want to be a Royal Marine. And uh, it was a sergeant. And he asked me, he goes, you, um, are you uh, captain of the football team? I said, no. He says, oh. So you're in the football team? I says, no. He says, we're really looking for the captains of the sports team. So, you know, you're not really what we're looking for. Right? Now, this was, a, he was an adult. Uh, he, he had that authority, but also he was an expert. He was a Royal Marines recruiting sergeant. His job was to go around and recruit people for the Royal Marines. And if he didn't know what was required or what, who could become a Royal Marine, this was to my mind, then how was I? Who was I to question that? So my, any serious aspirations I actually had of joining the Marines went there and then as, as a serious uh, career option, it had gone in that moment. But I never stopped dreaming about being a Royal Marine. That never left me. Why, why was that? I've got another failure to go. I went to the careers office at 18 and uh, I was interviewed by Chief Petty Officer Smith, a name emblazoned on my brain, in my memory. And then he turned around to me and said exactly the same thing. You're not what we're looking for. I don't think you're part of potential recruits course. That's at 18. And I still went back. And, uh, well, the rest was history, as they say. So what, actually what, kept that in me yeah because i and the reason why i think it's really current for me right now because i've been doing some presentations to schools and to the the, the latter end of the school age so teen um teenagers and this is really current because you were a teenager and your dream was to become a royal marine and that that was 
that door was shut not once but twice but yet you still achieved it and I think it's really important to understand how that happened what did you do well um if you keep picking yourself up and running at a brick wall hoping you'll get through it that's stupidity okay there's a difference between stupidity and dreaming dreaming is where you don't leave you where you still allow yourself to drift off so this is um and, and it's part of the reason why i wanted to be a brave person i uh, everything's relative but relatively speaking i had quite a difficult uh, childhood and upbringing and one of the results of that was that um I would drift off into a dream world as an escape from the reality of, you know, what was not a very nice time. And I would allow myself to do that. And I, I got really good at it without realising, without sitting there and thinking, right, what will help now is if I just dream. Right? It's just something that I always used to do. I find myself doing it all the time. I do it now. I just drift off. I see sake on the news. Um, and I'll drift off and imagine twice in the last week, I've imagined, just found myself imagining being an astronaut. I mean, I'm 52. Oh, God. Still, it. I know some of the dreams you've had, Frank, and <laughs> you've achieved a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, there was, it was on the news, Tim Peake um, was launching it, that um, they want to... Uh, see about getting people with disability in space right that just that one headline was enough for me to drift off and sit there imagining myself doing it and um uh this morning it's on the bbc website uh a japanese billionaire he's bought the first flight spacex flight into space and he's paid for nine spaces and he wants to take um eight other people up there with him and they've got to be, and he's going to sort of choose who it's going to be, but it's all free and it's going to be people that have done stuff. And that, that, again, that was enough for me to drift off of me little, it's part of me. It's what I do. I sit there and I'll dream. I think, I think for those that are listening, the context behind what you've just said then will come apparent when some of the dreams that we'll talk about that have turned into realities, which is why I laugh because I can just imagine you with a space helmet on in about five years time. Giving a thumbs up to the camera. <laughs> you saying that, though, Mo, I, I now don't try and make sense of things that happen. When something happens now, I, I kind of go, oh, well, that's normal. You know, that's it because you don't realise how... Just, just, like, I don't believe in karma and... and the power in positive thinking, how that can, me believing something can actually change something in the universe. I don't think it works like that. In fact, I'm pretty certain that it doesn't work that way. It's probably more that those opportunities exist, those little wormholes to, to reach your dreams exist, but we stop ourselves from going down that road because we don't believe it's true. We can't, we can't imagine us doing it. Whereas I can easily, I can see myself easily doing things because I allow myself to try. And that's, 
but that's set against all of the evidence that I am rubbish at everything. I've achieved what I've achieved. And I know, and, and, I, I, and I can feel you going, yeah, but not really. I, I have achieved everything I've achieved, um, being absolutely rubbish at everything, right? And I, I, if I had, if I had my son's natural ability, for instance, he's, he's always been sporty, he's always been really um, good at everything that he does. He, if he, he starts karate as a kid, within six months he's getting the best newcomer award and getting one of his belts. He's always been like that, you know? Annoying people like that, aren't they? <laughs> gifted <laughs> you're one of them no i'm not i'm not i i always think cool imagine what i could have done if i had a bit of ability if i had i, I used to think that my my one skill the one thing i'm good at is not giving in and it and it's probably true and i found that out when i done i finally got through an interview for the Romans and got on the potential recruits course. I scraped everything. I got called back in at the end of the uh, potential recruits course by the chief instructor. And he went through every one of my scores on the USMC test, so all the press-ups, everything. And I was one or two in on all of them. I think I'd done okay on sit-ups. I was just bad, not absolutely scraping the barrel right and um the last thing you do and i think they still done it when the prc was a thing uh, they take you down on the bottom field and they thrash you until people start giving up you just keep going and the chief instructor he followed me all the way around i now know that they were looking through the scores of the right he's borderline he's borderline he's borderline he's come down to have a look at himself right that's the way these things but then i didn't know that um, and he followed me round and I just done what I'd done all the way through and dug out. I threw up on everything as well. It's another thing that I've done. Threw up in the in the swimming pool, I threw up in the gym, just kept throwing up. And it became a little bit of a joke amongst the DS. It was, oh, Spencer, you still here, you're not giving up yet. So people were dropping out left, right and Chelsea. But I couldn't understand why. Why are you giving up? You're not as bad as me. That's what I kept thinking that, seeing these people give up going, but you're a lot fitter than me. Why are you giving up? I, this is a gift for you, you know? And it's actually when I passed the PRC that I just needed the chance to get on it and prove to someone that I had the ability to not give in. And that's the only natural ability that I have is that I don't give in. I now attribute that. That isn't down to um, determination just being a determined person, disciplined. It's not that, it's because I, I, I dream, I allow myself to believe that I can achieve certain things. So, the, so basically, in other words, the end state, the goal is greater than the, the, than, than the experience to get there. You're that, you're that hell bent on wanting to do what you've set out to do that the process just happens and you're going to move forward no matter what? Kind of. I I, I joined up uh, 
my troop, 635 troop and training, assume, I looked at everybody else there, there was people who ran for Scotland, uh, there was lads who boxed for Wales, lots of really good sportsmen. I looked at them, um, and I, I felt like, uh, you know, imposter syndrome sort of followed me for the majority of my career. Well, I thought, I, I, God knows how I've scraped into getting here, but I'll just hang on for as long as I can. But that ability to hang on for as long as you can, that comes not through just sheer discipline. I will not give in. Although, you know, a bit of that is needed. But what drives that, I believe, is um, that I that I allow myself to dream that it's true. And I know it's a dream. I don't believe, I don't sit there and go, right, I will, if I do this, this will happen. It ain't like that. It's literally just allowing yourself to just drift back into your own little world and, and daydream. It's daydreaming. When you're in a position where you're being tested on the, on your resilience is being tested on the assault course, as an example, when your body is screaming and you're thinking, and most people are thinking, what the hell am I doing here? What goes through your mind at that? You know, you know the points at which, you know, it's the character testing elements of training. What goes through your mind at that, at that point? I think in, um, there's two lessons in training that I've really learned, real important lessons. The first one was on exercise running man, which was a kind of half navigation, half uh, say survival, but it's really just staff because <laughs> you ain't going to catch anything, um, live off the land. And uh, I remember uh, the, the, the way it's run, you, you're living in a wood in this shelter that you've made and you're all sat around the fire shivering, trying not to let it go out. And then um, the training team would come in and say, right, sexual commanders on us and they'd go in and they'd be given the coordinates for another uh, set of nav navigation exercises you'd go off and yonk around. And I remember thinking quite matter-of-factly, like you said there, I can't do this. I know what I can and can't do, and I ain't going to be able to complete this. And I remember going off knowing that at some point I'm, I'm just not going to be able to put one foot in front of the other. And then coming back and, and being absolutely astonished that I completed it. Well, I could do it, but I definitely won't be able to do the next one. And the next one would come in and it would be a repeat process. I get to the end of that one, I'm thinking, right, well, I definitely won't be able. And after about three or four of them, I had to come to the conclusion that, do you know what? Maybe I don't really know what I'm capable of yet. And that stayed with me. I still don't know. I still don't know what I can and can't do. And, and that's after 52 years of pushing myself. We, we realised then that we as humans, from the most unfittest, useless, to the Usain Bolt, and everything in between, we are absolutely astonishing bits of kit. It's just incredible. And we don't know what we can and can't do. So I learned that lesson then. And the second one was lying to yourself. And I can't lie to myself. And I still struggle when I see people do it and they tell themselves a lie. And 
how that happened or how I realised that was whenever someone left training and they were always fitter and stronger and better than me and I was always right at the bottom and somehow I just, as people dropped away, I still hung in there and every time they left, every single one of them, every single one of them said, it's not for me. And I knew that was a lie because to get to the start line for joining the Royal Marines is hard graft. You can't just turn up at a quiz and say, I want to be a Royal Marine. They go, oh, there you go. Here's a uniform. You, you have to work at it for years sometimes. For me, since I was 13, maybe. But you can't just walk down. So at some point, it was for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have got there, Right. So what's changed? You don't know what being a Royal Marine is. We all know that it's training. It's a hurdle you have to get over. Now, if they if they had got over that and and after the first three months turned around and gone, yeah, it ain't for me, I get it. But it wasn't. And I knew that they were lying to themselves. And they all said it with conviction that, yeah, you know, I tried it, and it's it's not for me. And I thought, but that's a lie, because it was for you. And you still don't know if it is or not, because you're not a Royal Marine yet. You're a recruit. This is training. And I knew that I couldn't lie to myself. And that's that's the great thing that we get right is the way we train our people is, you know, it's right, here's the standard. This is what you have to do today at any point. Put your hand up and we'll show you the door, you know. But ultimately, us screaming and shouting at you, I ain't going to achieve anything. You have to do this. And I think that's the one thing we really want one of the many things we really get right because it it does you know those moments when you get to that moment when you are hurting what's the option what do you do i dreamed of being a royal marine it was my dream if i'd have if i'd have gone yeah you know i'm a bit out of breath now don't want to do this anymore then that wasn't my dream, was it? So it's knowing, um, it's knowing that you can't lie to yourself. You can't turn around and go, yeah, you know, I was so close, but I just, just couldn't get across the line because that's a lie. You gave up, I gave up, I knew it was a lie. And do you know what, mate? Um, when I rode across, last time on my own, the last two weeks is the hardest thing I have ever, ever done by a country mile. Those last two weeks were absolutely grim. I, I, I hit the wall right, two weeks out from South America. So I was physically exhausted. The mental gymnastics I had to do to get out and row every um, three hours during the day. So I was doing two hours on one hour off during the day and two on two off at night. The mental gymnastics I had to do to force myself out and run was horrific. And you're trying, your brain's telling you, look, if you rest now, right, you'll be a lot stronger 
in four hours time and you'll and you'll catch that you know what you what you've what you've missed you'll catch that up and i knew that was a lie these circumstances were uh, there was a really strong current going north as you're coming into the south american coast and we dropped 150 miles but we, me i dropped 150 miles south and that calculation of 150 miles was based on how fast the current goes up that way and how fast I was going that way. So I couldn't drop my speed. And I knew that calculation. Um, and it was the ability to, to actually stare things and, and be honest with yourself, because there were times when it took me 40 minutes to get out, actually get out the hatch, open it and sit down and roll. Uh, there was one point, I remember I was going, counting the 10. Took me 40 minutes of counting the 10 and going, right, I'm going to count the 10 and I'm going to go out. And I didn't go. I'm going to count the 10 and go. And it took me 40 minutes. And that honesty of knowing, you know, when you're trying to lie to yourself, say, oh, but, you know, if you rest, you'll be stronger. It's a lie. But it also works the other way where telling myself that I can't do it, I also knew that was a lie. And I knew the reason, I was being honest with myself, I was absolutely very close to giving everything that I ever had. And I knew that, and I was honest enough with myself to, to allow myself to be forgiving when I, whenever I got to 10 and couldn't actually open the door and had to count again. I knew I'd get there, I knew I would get out, and I knew that, an hour and 20 minutes rowing is better than no hours rowing. But that, that, that sense of being, being truthful with yourself, that came from training and seeing how other people were able to lie to themselves. So that's a long answer to your question on how you keep going when those moments where, where your body's screaming at you to give up, when you're a little bit out of breath or something hurts. You know, it's there's a difference between like, you know, holding your hand in a flame, that hurts, that's ridiculous, it's doing damage. It's not that kind of pain, is it? It's just your body, it, it's, it's knowing that actually giving up is gonna end your dream, you know? And, and again, it comes back to that thing. That, that's what picks you up when you fail. That's what keeps you going, is, is dreaming, being able to dream. You spent about seven, eight years trying to achieve your initial dream of becoming a Royal Marine. Do you remember what it felt like when you, when you passed that out off the parade square with a green berry? Um, yeah. Uh, I felt, you know, as, as everyone does, I felt a million dollars, but that don't last long because I wanted to be the wrong. I didn't, I didn't want a career in the core. I didn't want a job where you travel, and I didn't want a uniform. <laughs> I didn't want. I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be a brave person. That's all I ever wanted to be. I wanted to be able to look myself in the mirror and be proud of the person I saw standing back. That the um, when you join the Marines, you get that initial, that very, very initial and very, very quick feeling of 
I've achieved something here. I am a Royal Marines commando. But very soon you're surrounded by other Royal Marines commandos and that becomes the norm. And you start judging yourself by the people who stood around you. And um, my, my, the next goal for me, I, I, I always wanted to be a Royal Marine. I achieved that. My next goal and something I strove all my career to be was an average bootneck. <laughs> <laughs> and mate, there's, do you know what? There's no better accolade than someone calls you, you are an average bootneck. There ain't. Someone says that to you and means it. That is the biggest compliment there, there is out there. You think about how many, the, the incredible, awesome blokes that we know. There ain't a better accolade than that. I want to go towards the end of the career. You've had a, you've had a very um, diverse, colourful and incredible career. We're full with operational deployments, travel around the world and met some incredible people and done some amazing things, which is a show in itself. But I'd like to go towards the end of, end of your career um, and talk about the, the few years leading up to and including your transition and the events surrounding that, that, that time frame. I've always, in that, in that quest for being an average bootneck, always pushed myself on and I've failed lots of things on the way. I put myself, put myself in for a sniper's course um, in my first year in K Company. And uh, I, got, I got quite a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, it was a quite, it was a bit of bad feeling. You know, as a young sprog, how dare you put yourself, you shouldn't put in for a sniper's course unless you've done an island first. And, and uh, then I passed the selection and it was kind of like, all of a sudden I was accepted because <laughs> I passed, but I failed the actual course itself. Um, but that gave me, uh, I failed selection for the SBS um, twice. I would have gone again. Um, and I've always kind of pushed myself out there. And when I was, uh, when I failed my uh, sniper's course, because just getting on and doing the sniper's course itself, um, you kind of always, like when you went back to your unit, you got employed as a sniper because so few people passed the course that just by doing it, you, you, and I got in what was known as a sniper multiple for um, the South Armada tour in 94, 95. Where'd you go in, in South Armada? I was at Bezbrook Mill. Yeah, I was there in 2001. Was you? Yeah. Horrible, wasn't it? <laughs> what an ideal, eh? <laughs> no, not, old school. Yeah, it was like falling down the old uh, 18th century mill, wasn't it? Yeah, I ended up in um, in Cross McGlen with Lee Waters. Was you? Yeah, yeah. Well, we were like deployed across the whole of South Armada. We went into South Tyrone a couple of times. And we were used solely by a unit out there called JSG who ran all the agents, um, trying to fit a couple of books that are out there. 50 Dead Men Walking, um, 
the operator is another one. When you say agents, what do you mean by what? What do you mean by that? Can you explain uh, that? Uh, yeah. Um, so, not all the paramilitary organisations were infiltrated with by uh, various intelligence services, including the um, British military had its own unit uh, called Then. It started off as through Force Research Unit. Then it changed its name to Joint Support uh, Unit and now goes by the name of the DHU, Defence Human Unit. And um, they were running agents in um, some of them in the highest echelons of the IRA. I think um, State Knife is a famous book of uh, one of the most high, pro high profile of the uh, British agents in the IRA. And we were basically their multiple, they used us for all their little operations that they were doing. Um, so I got quite a privileged first-hand view of what the kind of work that they were doing. And it always um, stayed with me as a little bit of an idea, it was a little seed was planted in the back of my head. Uh, I then uh, went off and failed selection. I had to get special dispensation for my age to go on selection. Uh, the cutoff age used to be 32, and I was 32 on selection. I failed, come off really early. And then I had to go straight back on the next one uh, when I was 33. I came off that again quite early and uh, went back to Paul. And uh, I always remember the, like, the Sergeant Major of uh, T-Wing doing the training there. He said, uh, all right, what happened then? And I says, well, I didn't cut it. And he says, what do you mean you didn't cut it? I says, well, you know you get some blokes who just go out and drink and smoke and run five minute miles well, on the opposite end of the spectrum. It was never going to be easy. And it wasn't. And uh, so I gave it everything I could, but I just weren't good enough. And he went, oh. And, uh, and then I said, um, and I don't know where it came from or why I said it, but I said, you know what though? It's, it is a bit upsetting. I go, you know, you always get that one bloke, like when it's absolutely honking down, you're three weeks up on Senny Bridge and there's still that idiot making jokes, laughing and joking. I said, that's me. I don't get fed up with things like that. So I know I've got it in me. He went, wait there. And he went off and he called me into an office and um, I spoke to uh, a young officer, I take it. And he said, right, we've got a good relationship with Hereford, uh, with the SAS. And he goes, um, We'll try and get you back on selection. You train as if you're back on. So that's what I did. I trained as if I was back on. And then um, I weren't on the signal, so I didn't get called forward for selection. I rang them up and I spoke to the uh, OC at Tiwi. And uh, he says, yeah, he gave me, I gave me name. And he said, I'll call you back. And he called me back later that day. And he says, look, it ain't good news. It came down to the fact that um, you came off early in selection both times and also your age it was just one of them so it was the fact that I was old and crap <laughs> <laughs> but after that after um, getting I suppose selection out of my right, out of my blood I was the Charlie company in 40 command we then went straight to Iraq and I was a section commander on the initial in, you know flying in invasion which was amazing 2003 um, yeah yeah, on the L4 day. I still... Um, That's soon, isn't it, the anniversary? 
yeah, 23rd. Um, there were that, that, after that, I started thinking again about um, that JSG, the agent handlers in Ireland. So I, was, I don't know, I always felt like it was saying a bit more suited to me. Um, and then finally got around to applying for that. Went off, uh, they do a, they call it a PTA, pre-training assessment. And there's upwards of uh, 60 odd people on each one. And there's two feeder course. And it was about 14 of us passed the uh, selection thing and then got put uh, in training. It was a course of about 22, 23 of us on the course. And out of that course, no one passed all the way through. But subsequently, people who went back and tried again, only three of us got through. And I spent the last 10 years of my career um, at, uh, working in a price service unit um, away from the core, but still very much a bootneck. Did you enjoy it? Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And again, it, it's like you pass the course and then um, like you, you, I'd done so badly on my first course. I think a lot of people probably in the unit thought I shouldn't have got a second go at it, maybe. Um, so I had to, I, there was, a, there was, I felt there was a lot of bad feeling um, surrounding me and I had to prove that, uh, that I, you know, firstly deserved to be there, but, um, which I did, I, you know, the, the great thing about um, Afghanistan or, or conflict in general is, um, it's, it's often a big test and a great opportunity to prove what you can and can't do. I mean, that that just that proves a point, really. Um, so when you when you said you know I'm thinking now when you said that people didn't really think you deserved the second chance because you you know for your own admittance you did so badly on the first go. That's an environment that supports failure and so to overcome that you have to then not only overcome your own head but you have to overcome the environment that you're in to be able to try and succeed no i'm not saying that they should give everyone a pass that's not that's not what i'm saying but it's different levels of failure though mate <laughs> i was quite way off the richter scale <laughs> but but i think the point being that even though that you were you went back and passed so the perception on I'm quite well on the second course as well. But that but that's my that, that is my point. But the environment in which and this isn't a this isn't a dig at the the training pipeline there at all. This is more in general, where I think we sort of look at failure and go discard, see you later, you know, in, in other people. And the person has to individually through by what some ways or means overcome not only what's going on in their head. Like you said, when you was in training, you, you mentioned about, I don't think I'm going to get around in time. And you kept going and you did. And then you had to believe, you, you know, the belief came. But also the environment that you're in. And I suppose it sort of begs the question whether we sort of often talk about needing failure for success. But is there a different way that we can create an environment to nurture sounds a little bit woolly but to to improve improve success and develop people i think um yeah uh, i think i know what you're talking about and, and it's something that i saw the um 
the negative side of that. I, on my course, um, was someone who failed, um, absolutely failed. And they took them on at risk. Um, and uh, we then went away, done a tour and came back. And more or less all of us who, who passed that course, we went um, straight on as DS teaching on the course. And this person was notorious for being the harshest marker out there. And I think um, what that taught me is that as an instructor, and people, and this goes back to the core, the corporal's taking lads through. It's so easy. There's, there's that, there's that inherent environment in nearly all um, military organisations of, uh, in my day, it was a lot harder. We'd done this, we'd done that. And that that feeds into it. And people forget how crap they were when they were in a similar situation. And I think that's what you need from all instructors, first and foremost, is humility. Is absolute humility. And then fairness, you know, because you, I found. And I've needed to fail because I haven't reached the required standard. But, you know, so I'm not saying pass everybody because you can't. People need to fail. But as instructors, you need to have the humility to understand how crap you were in a similar situation. And I think that's often lacking or can be lacking. When you see it all the time, yeah, recruits nowadays, they're just, yeah, it's like a holiday. It's they're doing this and you've, everything, like, you ain't even the military. It's like you speak to anyone who's in their 50s or 60s, they'll tell you how easy kids have got it nowadays. Forgetting that, when they were growing up, you had free university, you could have gone to university if you wanted, all paid for, not spending the ne next 50 years of your life in debt. You had a house, you could actually move out at 20, move out and move into a house, get married and have a house. You know, you had a job for life, you know? Lots of things that kids haven't got now, but people don't see that. They just assume that they had it hard and everybody's a weakling now. It's a load of rubbish. You see it when people talk about um, mental health. Uh, well, I didn't have it in my day. No, because you used to get drunk and beat your mum up or beat your wife up. That's what you used to do, you know? It's, yeah, it's just manifested in a different way. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, but it's that, that full process of uh, it was harder in my day. I had it harder. I'm a better person. Why do you think that is? Do you think people are scared of, of other people being better than them or, or that they, or they're not secure enough in their own abilities? Or, or why do you think that comes about? Why you... without, without actually studying it and thinking about it to any level, probably a little bit of all of them. People, people throw up a mask. They don't. Round the Atlantic, right? One thing it does do is it throws up a mirror that you can't look away from. You see who you are. And that's what people do. They throw up mirrors. They throw up screens of, of who they want to believe they are. And modern day, 
in general doesn't throw up those times, those hardships, not in the way that we think of, where you where you do actually see who you are. That's that's what Ward does. You know? You you think you're the hardest bloke in the world, in the pub, the best the, the hardest bloke in the pub, but you don't know how hard you are until someone's shooting at you. You don't, do you? And 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 that's the thing. People throw up. They they lie to themselves, and and, and it all feeds into that. Oh, I'm, you know, my kids have got it easy. I had it hard. No, you didn't. It's different, yeah. And the thing is, I'm thinking about it now. People don't know they're lying to themselves either, because it's just all, what they've always done. Because they've never had the, like you say, when you expose yourself in times of arduous and in a time of arduous nature, like you have many times in your life, you get to look at a, a, a mirror image of who you actually are. There's not, but, but if you never experienced that, you wouldn't know. Every time that's happened to me, I've gone, oh, oh, didn't know that. I've, always, I've not, I've not ever been able to throw that that belief cloaking device up in front of myself because I've, everybody everybody suffers from low self-esteem. Everybody does. But it's all it's to what degree and and it's something that it's it's been debilitating for me. Um and you know it's been something that's been all through my life. Uh where I've always believed that I was a coward. That's why I wanted to be a Royal Marine. Why did you? Why did you think that? that it's quite specific um, reason behind that. It's not like a, a conglomerate of lots of little things. It's um, my. I, like, I, I grew up um, in like my dad was a violent alcoholic. He used to beat me mum up like really badly. Beat me up uh, at least once as well. And when he used to do it, my mum used to cry for me to come and help her. And I'd run in as a top and freeze in the door with fear. And uh, that just stayed with me, you know, all my life that I was a coward. You know, it, was, it, was, it weren't, it, it, uh, as I believed um, that, you know, I've got two, had two legs and two arms, as fundamental as that, and my head is on top of my body, as fundamental as me knowing that the body I have, I also knew that I was a coward. And that's why I dreamed, like my dream was to be not, not a Royal Marine as such. It, my dream was to be a brave person. I wanted to be what that Royal Marine meant to me. You know? um, so that's where that comes from. So when, whenever, and, and uh, my mum and dad divorced and uh, my relationship with my mum sort of massively deteriorated from that point, from about seven or eight. I think my mum and dad divorced when I was seven. It was like a long protracted period of a couple of years. And like my dad lived around the corner and we lived in the same street as my dad's mum, so my nan, granddad, who, like uh, always been a big, being a big part of my family, 
a big part of my life, my dad's side of the family. Um, but because like me, me, my relationship with my mum sort of deteriorated to um, almost nothing, um, it sort of leaves you, and also not being good at anything. There was no nowhere I could take solace in. I wasn't, I was, I wasn't even one of the naughty kids, you know. I wasn't one of the uh, hard, tough kids, you know. I wasn't the sporty kid. I wasn't the clever kid. I was nothing. I wasn't even the kid who could do falconry because <laughs> <laughs> you lost it. And I couldn't even spin on my head. Everything. I mean. Even like the thing with, I just remembered something else. It was a, you know, like street art in a spray painting walls. Well, that sort of came over. Yeah, that came over from America in the early 80s. Um, you know, like the uh, subway art. And, things. and uh, I decided, yeah, I'm going to be one of them. And there was a, uh, there's some kid who was really good at it. And he had like a little gang. And uh, we'd done one, an underpass on the A13, he'd taken them. <laughs> it went so bad that he went back and sprayed over it because he didn't want it associated with him. It'd be bad for his rep. <laughs> his tagline, yeah. Yeah, he sort of went over and, and destroyed it uh, because he didn't want it associated with him, even though it was me who'd done it, you know. Do you know, I did a, I did a recording with Jonah it was the first one that I did a podcast and he, and he said something um, in that recording that I think is quite appropriate now. Matt Lowe, PTI Jonah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to America with, um, and he said to me that where darkness shines, light shines elsewhere. And I think that, that, that saying is more than appropriate for you because where darkness would have shone when you were younger, it, the light was through dreaming and you've been able to forge a way through. It was horrible, you know? Being rubbish at everything is, is difficult. It's not an easy, it's not an easy uh, burden to carry. Um, and uh, mate, I, I, I'm pretty certain that dreaming was a coping strategy allowed me to drift off i don't think you'll be the only one i think that other people will, will do the same but won't realize it which is half the reason why i wanted to speak to you about that particular topic because being present and thinking okay well i'm dreaming that's a good thing because frank does and look at what he's done i'm gonna you know and if that's a coping strategy brilliant and i think that will be inspirational to other people that that will realize that i do the same I think when you dream as well, um, you exercise the optimism muscle. And I, I think that's probably as important as the dream in itself as well. Is you, 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 I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in if you want to get good at saying, do it. If you want to get good at press ups, do press ups. There's nothing better than that. And if you want to get good at believing you can do something, then believe you can do something and, and dream it dream it and dream it and you're exercising that optimism i'm i'm i am ridiculously optimistic and that's because of uh, i'm pretty certain of, of dreaming that that was it
for those listeners that have got an ear for detail, when you were describing your body and you said you had a head, two arms and one leg, can you just, can you uh, go back to that time and that situation where two legs became one? Yeah, I, I, uh, I was traveling back to work after a Christmas leave and um, I come across a car that had crashed into the central reservation on the M3. Um, I immediately pulled over um, to help help out. Uh, there was three uh, Polish people, two, two guys and a very, very heavily pregnant um, Polish woman. And uh, they, they were obviously in shock. But as I was sorting them out and checking them over, uh, another car crashed into theirs uh, with such force it flung the gearbox out. And the gearbox travelled about 70 metres, hit me, knocked me about 12 metres over the barrier on the side of the hard shoulder and took me right leg off below the knee and uh, completely dislocated my left leg. Um, I was conscious throughout. Uh, luckily, luckily I'd done three Afghans, so like sort of amputations was part Sorry, I laugh at that. I laugh at that. Luckily, I've done three Afghans. There'll be people listening to this that go, I wish I'd never done one. But obviously, in the context of this particular situation... Yeah, the reason I say luckily, though, is because a lot of people see the an irony. They say, oh, you came through all of that. You've done 18 months in Afghanistan. You came through that unscathed, only to lose your leg on the side of the road. But the way I look at it is losing my leg on the side of the road was life happening. But if I hadn't, have done those Afghans, I wouldn't be here now because I, the, the, the truth of it is I reacted and saved my own life. Um, I got a passing Rastafarian um, to try and get a tourniquet on. And when that didn't work, I got his daughter to stand on me uh, groin to shut the femoral artery down. And that's what saved my life. And actually, by the time I got to hospital, I'd lost over half my body's blood. And they couldn't take me by ambulance that's a flyer helicopter so i'd lost so much blood and give me a transfusion on the side of the road i was bang on a knife edge between life and death and if i hadn't been to afghan if i didn't have that resource in me which is it sounds odd but when we led looked down saw me leg there i went excuse the swear word but for for um case of accuracy this is exactly what went through my head. And I can remember it really clearly. Fuck, my leg's gone. But that's not important. I've got to stop the bleed. And it was that quick. And if it hadn't have been that quick, I wouldn't be here now. I would have bled out. What was it like to be on the, on the, the knife edge, as it were? You know, you said you was at a 50-50. Were you present? Did you realise that that was the case? Or were you focused on fixing yourself? I had uh, a real sense of the abyss right next to me as a real tangible thing. If you read the, um, when, when we, I rode across the Atlantic uh, first time with a team of four, uh, me and the guy I rode with, Cal, he, we sort of taught each other poems to pass the time as he was going across. I taught him if, and he taught me Invictus. And Black as the night from um, pole to pole, 
I think whatever gods may be for my incomparable soul. You read those lines, that describes as perfectly as anything I've ever heard that moment of being there and feeling the abyss there. Um, that that's what it was like. The ambulance turned up and they got a proper tourniquet on. I knew I was going to live. I knew that the only thing that was wrong was lack of blood. Um, and I knew that once the ambulance got there and they shut that down, I was going to live. Were you still conscious in the ambulance throughout the process? Like what? Yeah, what the was was, um, they they said, right, uh, they gave, they couldn't, uh, first thing they the paramedics got there and I was like, lads, give me morphine. So as soon as they turned up, I was in quite a lot of pain, as you can imagine. And they said, we can't until we get, you've lost too much blood. Um, and they couldn't give me morphine because it, it just shut down the system. Um, so uh, they helicopter came and uh, they got me in the back of the helicopter and they gave me a uh, plasma. And then once they gave me that, uh, I remember the medic saying, was a doctor and he said uh, right we're going to give you something better than morphine now we're going to give you ketamine and uh, then we'll take you to hospital and I looked at the, <laughs> I looked at the doctor and I went do you know what this ketamine's brilliant because I want to say that I saw you yesterday at Womford Market true story you know but I know that's not true and he looked at me weird and that's the last thing I can remember I woke up in hospital the next you time. didn't get your answers to see if you'd actually seen him or not <laughs> <laughs> I woke up in a in a hospital the next day. I fought my way out. Of, um, they were going to keep me in an induced coma for a couple of days um, to get, let my body rest. But I fought my way out three times. And the third time, they uh, decided it would be easier to leave me awake than to put me under again. What were you thinking when you're lying in the hospital hospital bed when on that third time when you were left awake? Um, they came and told me that I'd lost my leg and I said, well, I'd be surprised if it was still there. Um, so I knew I'd lost my leg, but re really, that night was such a struggle and a fight to stay alive that when I actually woke up in hospital, I was like, yes, my leg's gone, but I'm here. And how, what, were the, what was it like the, the weeks, months following that incident? Right, within this is within next year, I'm doing a thing called the Triathlon Great Britain. Right, where I'm going to swim the channel, cycle lands into John O'Groats, going via Snowdon, Scarfield Pike, and then do a marathon over Ben Nevis. So I've incorporated the three most iconic and biggest challenges in the British Isles swimming the channel, the three peaks, cycling lands into John O'Groats. Right. I had the idea for that within the first couple of days waking up in hospital. I was on a lot of drugs, which probably explains quite a lot of that. I hadn't even been able to move myself out of me out of my hospital bed to defecate yet. I hadn't been able to do that. And I was still dreaming of doing a marathon over Ben Nevis and swimming the channel. That's the level of optimism and that's what I mean by dreaming. I just laid there and thought, God, wouldn't it be amazing if I could do that? And then I'd gone. I was away dreaming how it'd feel like crossing the line, swimming the channel, and doing all that. And in the meantime, rowing oceans got in the way. And that's why 
I'm looking, for, you know, I'm finally gonna tick this one off. I had the idea within a couple of days of losing my leg. I'd like to come on to that. I know you've uh, made reference to the Atlantic crossings, plural. So much the same as you had a dream to join the Royal Marines and then the seed was sown for Agent Hanlon and you know many other examples that you've used. Where did the Atlantic crossing seed come from and where did that dream start? Don't know where, it, where the dream actually started, but the seed came. Um, I was in the Royal Marines display team in 2004 with Scotty Mills. And I organised the end of season um, party. And it was in a pub in Paul called the Blue Boar. And at the time it was run by an ex-bootnik called, um, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, I'd gone down there and had a few meetings with him. And uh, in the bar on the wall was like this really odd looking boat like a rowing boat. I said, like, what's that? He says, oh, that's, that's my rowing boat. I'll try to row the Atlantic in. No, you tried to row the Atlantic. I'd never heard of anything more bonkers. And I then spent like hours just asking questions, how he got the, how, you know, how he got the money to do it, where he, you know, how he got the time off the call because he got, he was in the call and done it. I was just utterly amazed. And, and also, I dream like, I romanticise things when I dream. And I thought about the romance of, of, a, of a human pitting himself against the entire Atlantic Ocean in a rowing boat. You know, it just that just seemed so incredibly fantastic in its own way. And then uh, I ended up in losing my leg and then going to Headley Court. And in my first time, I turned up at Headley Court. There's a bloke in the bed opposite me. And uh, he's got no legs. He sat on his bed, no legs. He's got a big beard. And he introduced himself. And I said, oh, I was in the bed opposite him. I said, what's with the beard, mate? And he says, oh, I've just come back from rowing the Atlantic. I was like, what? <laughs> with no legs. And then that's when I, I thought when I lost my leg that the person that I was, that so when, I, when I, as I said um, at the start, uh, I've, I've led men in war. I was a special duties operator. I, I, I worked undercover in Afghanistan, at the time the most dangerous place on God's earth. You know, I properly fought. I could finally look myself in the mirror and be happy with all I sort of stand back. And that's been a big thing in my life is it's, it's more than just a metaphor. It's an actual real test that I've applied all my life is do I like who I see staring back? And you can't avoid it every morning. Most mornings you stare in the mirror, don't you? Um, I thought that person that finally, I thought finally, I am that average bootneck and I can stare myself in the mirror and, and be happy with who I see staring back. I thought I'd lost that. I thought that had gone. And I thought, right, I've now got to redefine who I am. But within 
the terms of being a disabled person. I'm no longer a Royal Marine. I'm no more a bootleg. I'm no longer somebody who defines herself by what they could do physically. I'm, I'm disabled. But I've got to be the best disabled person I could possibly be. And uh, when I spoke to, was, his name was Carol Weiss. We just rode across the Atlantic with Road to Recovery, where there was two able-bodied guys and two um, military uh, veteran uh, amputees. And uh, that, after, that was the first time I realised that that side of my life was still open. I could still do things like that. And I then got an email um, shortly after I started walking for the first time again on the prosthetic. So it was uh, towards the end of my first year as an amputee, looking for volunteers to put together the first all amputee crew to Ryan Ocean. And I applied and I made it my mission that that year I was going to get a place on the boat, even if it was reserve. I didn't care, I was going to be in the team. I actually got on the boat, I wasn't a reserve. And so when I set off to row with Road to Recovery, would cow that guy with a big beard in the bed opposite me, he skippered us across because he'd already done it. I uh, I didn't set off to just row an ocean. I set off to look in a mirror on the other side of an ocean to see if I liked who, who I saw staring back. So that's what drove me the whole way across the Atlantic was I wanted to get to the other side and be able to stare in a mirror. And I've actually got a photo of that moment. Um, I, said, I said it wasn't a metaphor. It's something that I've lived my life doing. And I actually got me misses. Like we got to the other side. Um, we had all the press and everything. And I needed to go to the toilet. And I got me missus. I said, you come with the top. She had to come with me anyway, because she couldn't stand up. She was swaying everywhere. You like that for about three days afterwards. I, I had to get taken to the toilet and everything. And I said, You take me to the toilet. And she took me to the toilet. And I got her to photograph the first mirror I saw me staring in a mirror. Um, and I, I got over, got across, and, and was able to, to stare at myself in the mirror and know that. Uh, I'd done it. Relief. Um, when I said I thought the person I was had gone, that person I took forever to get to, to be able to look finally at myself and be happy with who I was. When I lost that, when I lost my leg, it was almost devastating. I knew I'd have to start from scratch, right? But I knew I'd get there eventually because I've done it once before. I just have to do it all again. But so actually, it was, it was actually whilst we were rowing about three quarters of the way across, so towards the end, just had like this epiphany. I just suddenly realized, I remember the moment we was rowing. So I was still the same person, you know, nothing had changed in there. There's a little bit less of me. But you know, when you lose your leg and you're not a soldier anymore, you know you're not going to be a soldier anymore. That, your identity's so bound up with that being a bootneck 
that when you realise that's gone, you think you've lost that part, you've lost yourself. And unless you've experienced that, that thing that, you know, it's a fundamental part of who we are, that sense of self that sits right in the centre of our being. Unless you think you've lost that, which I did, I lost it. Actually finding it again is without doubt the single most important and significant thing to happen to me um, since losing my leg, without a shadow of a doubt since losing my leg. Where did the... The idea to go, do you know what? That was pretty horrific, rowing 3,000 miles. I'm going to do that on my own. Honestly, it felt like there was a unique opportunity and it would be silly not to take it. I just rowed across, so I knew I could do it. I knew how to. I had the contacts now within that world to put it together. Um, I also reckoned I had between a year and 18 months before I'd get medically discharged. So I was get, getting paid so I could work on something full time for a year to try and put it together. So I thought it was worthwhile trying. I thought it was a worthwhile thing to do. Um, my, my mission since then, was then and has been since, is keeping wounded injured servicemen in the nation's conscience. And I thought there's no better way of doing that than the the sight of a wounded Royal Marine, one led Royal Marine doing something extraordinary. And I thought it was a worthwhile thing to try. I was in a unique position where I could do something that I thought was worthwhile. And I thought I'd give myself eight months to see if I could do it. You know, I'd need a boat, I'd need, uh, in, in the end, I think I needed to raise between 140 and 170,000 in sponsorship and freebies to actually get the boat in the water ready to go and get her back, um, which is a lot of money. And uh, I thought, right, well, let's try. And I was quite prepared to get, um, started around January. I sort of made the decision about October, November time. I thought, well, I've got a year, I'll get to August, if I can get to August, September, if I've got nothing, if I've got no sponsorship, then I'm quite happy to put my hands up and go, I gave it a good go and it was it was something worthwhile trying, but it just hasn't worked. As it turned out, I've got quite a lot of everything in place by that time. And uh, I surprised myself actually that, you know, it, it looked like I'll be able to do it. And what was clearly not having three other people in in the boat what was the some of the significant challenges you faced when when we did the solo crossing and did you expect them to happen as well no I, I expected to really struggle and being alone I didn't I always thought that I'm quite a needy person that I like having other people around me um but actually being on my own was it was easy then it weren't a problem at all you know, you had people on the end of the phone, but actually seeing people, you know, I weren't lonely, um, which I thought I would be. But what I didn't consider was fear when you're on your own. I've been in the fear just ate into every part of your being. In what respect? 
the fear of death or or not achieving the goal or no 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 fear of being death I suppose the fear of being I was I was in a tiny rowing boat and at times the closest human to me was in the National Space Station you know I was the only human for hundreds of miles and and there was a period um, a couple of weeks after going past the Canaries where so you, you kind of getting towards the middle of the Atlantic. And I was just hit by these horrific waves and weather. And you just, you can't, that's the thing, you know, if you go to sea in a small boat, then there's one of the fundamental truths of that situation is no matter who you are, what experience you've got, how well prepared you are, the Atlantic Ocean says, not you, not this time. There's nothing you can do about it. They, they, you have to acknowledge your own insignificance compared to the might of the ocean. You have to. And understanding that and how, how incredibly powerful, like tiniest little flick, the ocean's finger, and you, you, that's your boat gone. And just being in that situation in those big, angry seas, or big, big breaking waves, I mean, one of them was close to 50 foot. And I know that's my boat was 22 foot. It was double the length of the boat. I surfed, ended up, I thought this wave was going to capsize the boat right over. It was huge. You're, you're going backwards and you can see it going up as you're going up it. Um, I, I, in the end, it scooted down, it surfed down this wave, and it done. 14.7 knots down this wave. Give you some kind of context. When you're rowing, a good rowing speed is like three knots, three and a half knots. So put that in the context. The, the boat ended up doing 14.7 knots. That's how big that wave was for me to shoot down. It weren't, it weren't uh, 50 foot that way. It was 50 foot that way. Uh, it was like, and that was the biggest of a lot of big waves they were just smashing the boat I remember, uh, in the cabin quite a few times I, like my alarm would go off to get up and go out and roll my boat in the cabin like going out there close the cabin door and quite a few times the alarm would go off where the steering system had gone your boat's constantly moving the waves and the wind they move your boat which a lot of people ask me assume that when you're not rowing boat's drifting about when you're sleeping it's just drifting about you can't if it goes side on for even the smallest breaking wave the boat's going to roll you're going to capsize now they're designed to come back up but you know many 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 ocean boats have been destroyed there and then on a capsizing boat like when you always get washed off you know everything sometimes they don't come back up the way they should um mick dawson a boat now. I'm reading his book at the moment. And he got stuck and the boat didn't come back up and he had to make that decision where he had to open the hatch and get out and come up. Um, you can't stay in there forever, can you? <laughs> it's um, so that is that fear. And it, I, I've been in, been in situations, I've been to war four times. You know, I've been in tricky situations and dangerous situations. When you 
surrounded by people, when you're in a troop, when you're part of a, an organisation or part of something, that fear is so much easier to deal with. But when you're out there on your own, it just eats into every part of your being. So there's nowhere to disappear to, nowhere. And I had to come up with um, a coping strategy. And the way I, what I used was distraction, distract myself. So any bit of morale, even if it was my favourite meal, my favourite songs, if I got, I was listening to podcasts or um, audio books, if I got to a, you know, what you would be a page turn if you was reading traditionally, I'd, excuse me, I'd stop there and then. You know, that point where you can't wait, you can't wait to find out what's going to happen, I'd have to stop. And I saved those moments for when the fear got too much. It didn't take it away, but it made it manageable. Wow. And that and those coping strategies sound like they were shoestring, but that's what kept you going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, friend of mine uh, lives lives in the village. Here. He was an army commander. Sort of, like we met at breathing classes. You know when you have kids. So but it was twenty five now. Christ, um, so I've known him for that long. He's he's son. He recommended me, like, before I left, he says, oh, good book. He says, The Chimp Paradox. So I got that. And uh, that was, it's, it's a way of looking at how your brain is basically made up of two parts. You've got your, your fundamental animal instincts, the chimp, and the higher thought on what makes, what we would say, what makes us human. It's Professor Steve Peters, isn't it? Yeah. How often in conflict. And actually, I listened to that, and that's where... I got the idea of distracting the chimp with nice things. Um, and that's where I got the idea from. And it, it worked where it worked. It worked enough to make uh, life on the boat manageable. Not pleasant, but manageable. So therefore it worked. Was there any, was there any pleasant times on the boat? Uh, yeah, loads. Like when you, you see turtles or whales or and the dolphins at night, when you can hear them, you, you, like your alarm will go off or you're just awake and you can hear the dolphins squeaking and then you go out and they're, you know, their skin, they come and have a look and the moonlight shimmering off their skin, you know. And not so much on this one because the weather was horrific, but on my first one, well, you, you get times when it's like glass, there's not a ripple for miles and like the bioluminescence at night when you pull the oils in it's just like just see this green glowing around you it's beautiful it's like the northern lights but there down around you the stars at night astonishing as well someone uh, asked me what's the best and worst thing about running an ocean uh, worst things starting, the best things finishing. <laughs> but if you make me pull out something in the middle, <laughs> there are moments like that. Yeah, uh, it's it's fascinating for me because, as you know, the aspiration is to is to try and emulate um, a crossing in a few years' time. So it's it's really incredible to listen to your story and to listen to some of the anecdotes that you have with it. 
I want to move on to talking about the book. You mentioned that you're writing a book at the moment. Can you explain explain some of the details surrounding that? Um, yeah, it's a personal thing. Um, I actually got asked by a big publisher um, to write a book. If I would write a book before the run, then after the run, we had a series of meetings and it kind of fell through. Um, there's a series of books and if you go into any you go into any supermarket or Waterstones or or Christ, can you remember going to airports? You remember what that was like on an airport um, bookshop like Smith's? On the bookshelf, there's going to be a series of books and it's going to be a military person, just his face and a kind of rugged stare. Um, and uh, what they were trying, in hindsight, I think that's the kind of book they wanted. And the reason it fell through is because I haven't got a uh, big social media following. <laughs> so it came down to marketing. I, I got told uh, um, that's absolutely what it was. So if they go to Waterstone, say, here's our new book, and I say, who's going to buy it? They turn around and say, oh, he's got like, 30,000 followers on Twitter. And you go, okay, stick it in. <laughs> that's how it works. But um, I got, I started writing and throwing things down. And uh, I'm now doing it. And um, as I said, I was an academic. I failed academically at school. I left without any GCEs, with GCSEs in uh, English. I had to get one uh, to be qualified for a SART major in the Marines. So I'd done it uh, whilst I was in the Corps after I um, left school. Who did you copy? <laughs> I just read a book by um, some prolific reader uh, who wrote the Ross Factory. He died, uh, Jock. In, uh, I want to say Rankin, it's not. Right, uh, oh, anyway, I read a book and I basically ripped off this book. It's called The Bridge. He wrote, and it's uh, the, the the book is some the the crux of the book is this person's in a coma, but you don't. Ian, Ian Banks. <laughs> Ian Banks, that's it. Yeah, I just googled it. Yeah, Ian M. Banks. He does uh, sci-fi, but Ian Banks, Was Factory, brilliant. He, Espadare Street as well is really good as well. Read uh, all of his books, and um, I basically just ripped off the idea of being in a coma and not realizing it's a coma to the end. And I, f I think that the person who marked it sort of like, where for it went, oh, oh shit, I should have been marking that really, shouldn't I? <laughs> like grammatical errors and things like that. So I, I think that's how I, I scraped a pass. But um, as I say, I'm a prolific reader and I'm writing now. And I'm really, really proud of what I'm writing. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, don't know if it'll ever see light of day. I might be deluding myself, I don't know. But I genuinely like what I'm writing. And what I've done is I'm telling like my whole story, but in, if you can imagine in um, 55, which are the days that I was at sea, 55 short chapters. So it's like, if you write a book about rain in the ocean, it's like, Day one is very much like day 37, which is very much like the 36 before that and the however many afterwards. They'd be pretty short chapters. Yeah, it's, 
<laughs> bit wet today <laughs> surrounded by sea yet again <laughs> and mate, mate that sounds incredible and um i i very much look forward to reading it when it when it comes out mate thank you very much for your time i appreciate it. it's, it's limited you've got a lot on and i and i you know i'm keen to follow your triathlon challenge in you know next year and and if i can support in any way please give me a shout um i think it's oh, incredible what you're doing. and you will be able to and i'll take you up on that offer definitely um but i think it would also be remiss of me not to mention a shout out to anyone that knows ian wright because frank's been trying to get hold of ian wright to go he's got a new podcast and as you just listened to the last hour and a half he's got an incredible story to tell so if anyone listening can get a message to Ian Wright to get in touch with Frank or myself to get in touch with Frank. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Ian Wright's my life hero. Do you know why? Go on. He never gave up on his dream of being a Premier League footballer or being a professional footballer. Well, everyone knows it didn't happen to him until he's late, but actually listened to his um, book whilst I was rowing across. And he, he grew up in difficult... Um, he, he had no male role model that he could look up to. That's where that whole story with his teacher um, famously came about. Because he, he gave him someone to look up to. And, and he, for the first time, sort of like put him on that, that road. And he never gave up believing. You know, after all the knockbacks that he had and all the times that he went, and their trials with this club, that club, that club never went anywhere. And then you got called back once by Palace and went the second week, and then the rest is history, isn't it? There you go. Dream. You two would have an incredible conversation without question of a doubt. Frank, as I said, mate, you're an, you're a legend. You're you're not a failure in my eyes and many many other people's eyes. You're you're an incredible bloke. And the evidence outweighs and argues against your your opinions. Um, but, mate, awesome to talk to you, pal. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers, mate.